Hello, and welcome to the strangest gig I've ever played. Tales from the studio and the stage. The podcast where we hear the true stories while the strange, weird, wild, wacky, terrible, and or amazing gigs we have to take in order to make it as freelance and gigging musicians. I'm your host, Chris J. Norwood. On the podcast with us today is one Stockton Helbing. We got some great stories in line for you. So stick around. So if you're joining us again, after listening to the first episode, welcome back. Means I didn't scare you away. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, I hope you'll go do that at some point. It's where I, where I introduce myself and the podcast and kind of tell you what we're all about. Again, my name is Chris J. Norwood. And a couple things before we get started here. My new single titled I Am Not Cool, the title track off my new album, comes out May 21st. I'm very excited about it. I hope you'll check it out. You can go to chrisjnorwood.com to get more info. And yeah, see the music video when it comes out as well. It's absolutely fantastic, and we had a lot of fun making it. If you happen to live in the DFW area, we're having a single release show on May 21st at Oak Highlands Brewery. Also happens to be my birthday, so... You should come out and see us and wish me happy birthday. The podcast is now on Spotify and you can get to it by asking your Alexa as well. And we're working on getting it on Apple podcasts. And if you're becoming a fan of the podcast, you can really help me out by helping spread the word. Tell your friends about it, post about it, do all the things. And as the great Joe Pug says on his podcast, The Working Songwriter, spreading the word, listening, tuning in be much more beneficial for me than it will be a pain in the ass for you. So I would greatly appreciate it. Our guest this episode is Stockton Helbing. As I said, Stockton is a jazz drummer, composer, arranger, educator, session musician. After graduating from UNT in the famed one o'clock lab band, Stockton cut his teeth playing drums for the great Maynard Ferguson, which eventually led to him playing drums for the great Doc Severinsen. He also has his own band and their album Light Sleeper came out in 2020 and it is fantastic. I highly suggest you checking that out. You can go to StocktonHelbing.com for more info on that. Stockton and I first met while I was working a session at Breed Music where I work and the movie Birdman had just come out and we got a reference. That is a reference. The soundtrack to that has a bunch of crazy sporadic drumming and that's just not something we could fake or do in house. So we um, got Stockton's number and called him in. And uh, there's also a part where we needed just kind of crazy Latin drumming chops. And again, not something we could pull off in-house. So we got Stockton and he came in and just absolutely killed the session. Um, then I've had the great pleasure of getting to play with Stockton a couple other times um, in the pit band for the Turtle Creek Corral. And we got to play the, Meyer- the Meyerson Symphony Hall in- here in Dallas, which is was an amazing gig. And he's always been a joy. He's one of the nicest guys that I've ever been able to work with. Uh, just a truly phenomenal drummer. And uh, he had some some really great stories to share with us. And I can't wait for y'all to hear them. So let's go ahead and dive in. So welcome, Stockton. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for Uh, having me, Chris. Guest number one. I'm very, very excited to talk to you because I have a lot of um, a lot of questions to ask you about kind of your trajectory. So uh, first, tell me about your current gig, what you're doing now. um, And you could also talk a little bit because... COVID is what it is. So you could talk a little bit about that and how that's affected it. Sure. If it has sure. or if it hasn't. You know, it, it's uh, as per usual, it's a complicated answer. 
And, and it's it's a question us musicians get a lot, uh, especially when you're traveling. You know, I find myself a lot sitting on an airplane with someone sitting beside me saying, oh, are you traveling for business or pleasure? And you're like, oh, well, it's for business. Oh, what do you do? And this is like, this starts this common cycle that we go down like, oh, well, I'm a musician. Oh, are you in a band? Well, I, I, yes and no. Oh, I love, you know, stuff like that. But um, <clears throat> so I would say, as per usual, for the past 20 years of my career, um, the number one thing I do and that I am uh, most invested in is myself as an artist and uh, myself as both a drummer. I, I'm, I play drums as my primary instrument and I write uh, my own original music, which is in a modern jazz context, which I know everyone just fell asleep <laughs> when they heard that. Um, uh, I think you underestimate the nerdiness <laughs> well, you know, of whatever my target audience will be. I mean, I, I, I definitely, of all music, I love so much music. Jazz is, is my favorite music. Now, and particularly jazz of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, so I do a lot of my own original music with my own band, and a lot of the guys who play with me I've been playing with for over 20 years and have a new album out. And so that's uh, my favorite thing to do. And there's some things that have kind of spiraled off uh, myself as an artist and a jazz musician, and a lot of it has kind of accidentally turned into what I call jazz outreach. I do a lot of edu educational uh, type situations where I am performing, but also talking about the basic tenets of jazz music and, and improvisation, which scares people half to death. Of course. And then the thing that I've stumbled into that I never expected is that it has been the perfect opportunity to talk about diversity because the history oh, of jazz music is most definitely the history of black music in the United States, which necessitates talking about civil rights and discrimination. Absolutely. And it plays a part in what the music became. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know, I, th I think if I had to kind of like encompass what I primarily do, it's those type of artistic functions with right. educational components. Mm -hmm. But along with, you know, what I do kind of artistically, for years and years, I've been a studio musician. And that has actually thankfully continued through the pandemic, where, you know, maybe a couple sessions a month, ranging from, I mean, you name it. Uh, it's It's nice when we're in... You know, we're in a, a really interesting metropolitan area with a lot of diverse music. So there's a lot of different opportunities. So it's everything from boutique singer-songwriter projects to demo sessions for songwriters, commercial things, you name it. And so that's continued. And so I've done that. I've done that for 20 plus years. Uh, and, you know, honestly, as with most things, it's kind of the, the attrition takes over and I've just been able to stick with it long enough to outlast some other players who I think, quite frankly, were better drummers than me, but <laughs> have moved on to either other places or sure. just changed careers. Um, so those are the two primary things. And I would say that the last thing I do is I do a fair amount of teaching. Um, I teach as an adjunct professor at the University of North Texas, and I've been teaching there off and on for a long time. Uh, so I do two or three days a week there of just private drum set, and then I maintain a private uh, lesson studio in my home studio. Uh, and when it's not the pandemic, usually that's difficult to juggle. And that's been a real wonderful blessing as far as financial stability yeah. with some of my, all my live performing going away. Um, but it's been nice. Everything's, I'm seeing signs of hope. Yeah, signs of life again. Yeah. So a couple of the things that I really was interested in talking to you about is uh, you play for drums for Doc Severinsen. Yes, yes. I, th I guess you could technically say I'm still Doc's drummer. Doc is 94. Right. And so as you can imagine, he's in that high-risk area. Exactly. He's, he's yeah. been locked down. Um, but we do, hopefully when things will get better, we'll start working again. But I've been working with him since 2011. 
So tell me, uh, one, tell me how did you, how you came up, and then tell me like was was there an audition? What was the audition process like? Sure, definitely no audition. Okay. Um, and I have found with the higher tiered artists that I've been very fortunate to work with, they come and find you. They come and find you, and it's word of mouth. Yeah. And same thing for me with Doc. So Doc knew who I was because I played with a friend of his for years. I played with Maynard Ferguson for four years. And I was Maynard's drummer and music director before he passed in 2006, which incidentally is how I met my wife. My wife worked for the tour management company that did artist relations for Maynard. Yeah. And I met her at a party where the band met the staff from the office at a hockey game of all things. Oh, wow. But uh, Doc knew who I was and... In 2010, 2011, his longtime drummer, Ed Shaughnessy, who's the famous Tonight Show drummer with the giant sideburns. Right. He had gotten to a point health-wise where he couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. And so Doc wanted someone new, and he called... I mean, it's just a great lesson to young people to think about how you represent yourself when you're younger. Yeah. He called my college teacher, Ed Sof at North Texas, mm -hmm. and said, hey, I'm interested in this guy. What can you tell me about him? And then can you give me his contact information? Mm -hmm. And that's how it was. So... Doc had already hired me and I hadn't played yet for him. And it was wild and crazy because it was very pretty vague. You know, show up, it's going to be a three week tour. We'll rehearse for two days. And I'm like shipping my drums ahead of time. Yeah. And Meanwhile, here. you're going through his whole cat back catalog. Everything. Yeah. Trying to learn note for note. Everything. Cause you have no idea. Yeah. They, you don't, they know don't what even expect to be anything. You. And you don't want to, you, you know, they're going to call one thing that's going to get you. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what could it be? But yeah, just getting all the old records and, and not only learning the song specifically, but getting a feel for the overall vibe and tendency of what they're looking for. Right. And I actually screwed it up, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Because I didn't like the way Ed Shaughnessy played on some of that stuff. Uh -huh. To me, it was a little cheesy. Okay. It's kind of old school, big band stuff where, you know, two and four is played as a side stick the whole time. Yeah. And I'm more of a, you know, I want to hear Sonny Payne with Count Basie in the 60s, and it's just cooler. Yeah. It's a little more aggressive drumistically. It's not as conservative. So did you have to change your playing i mean did you have to yeah oh yeah to match what doc wanted was he yes used to? yes so we're in the first rehearsal and we're playing i'll never forget it we're playing uh in a rehearsal space at the minnesota orchestra's hall mm -hmm. and we're rehearsing in a room and we play it down and I, I knew all the tunes and there were charts and I, i'm a decent reader so i thought it was going well but about halfway through the first part of rehearsal i was like you know it doesn't it just didn't feel like the band was locking in it didn't feel like it was in the pocket so i started playing some two and four on the, on the snare as a side stick thing, and immediately it gelled. Yeah. And so we get to the first break, and Doc walks right over to me. So that's where I'm like, well, here it is. I'm, I'm done. It was nice doing this, but I'm fired now. And he was like, hey, sound great. I heard you bring that snare drum on two <laughs> and four. And, I, that, and this is what got me. He said, that really helps me. Yeah. And immediately I was like, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> and he didn't say do it or I'll, he was cool about it. Yeah. But I realized if he is humble enough to say this is what he needs to have a good performance – and he's Doc Severinsen, I'm going to do it. And exactly. I think that's what kind of started our relationship off. But then he hated my cymbals. Oh, yeah? He hated two of my cymbals. Just and the sound? Or? Yeah. yeah. He said, that frequency's bad for me with where I like my trumpet to sound. Mm -hmm. And I had only flown out with one set. Oh, and we're getting ready to do three weeks. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So then, and I mean, this is like 2011, so Uber really wasn't a thing yet. So I'm getting a cab to go to the only guitar center. <laughs> and they don't, they don't have much to choose from. And then they're retail prices it was so I, i'm spending like you know 800 bucks that day and i'm like i hope he likes these because I, like <laughs> yeah. here's the first week of pay for this gig right room. yeah and he did and i told him too, he was like hey i tried some more things mm -hmm. 
And he's like, oh, and just the fact I think that I was willing to change. Yeah. He was like, cool, because I think that was something uh, that other drummers he had tried had not done. So the next thing I want to talk about is, it, I, I met, it sounds like you were a bit like me. So I was a trumpet player in high school. You know what? I forgot about that, yep. but I, you've told me that before. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then you got smart and gave that up. Well, I'm so just, I'll I'm tell just... you, no, exactly. I will tell you why. So I was a trumpet player, started in middle school, played through high school, played through college. And I, it sounds like you were like me, is I was an, an enormous Maynard Ferguson fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, enormous. Yeah. He was, for trumpet players in high school, mm-hmm. certainly in the ni- 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. I imagine even now. Oh, yeah. He was the pinnacle. I realized early on, okay, I'm never going to be able to play like that. <laughs> I just, and, and I wanted to, I wanted to scream. Yeah. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted yeah. to be Maynard Ferguson. I was like, I'm never going to do that. Oh, I, I can kind of play guitar. I'll, I'll go down that path. So I know you played with Maynard. You've mm-hmm. talked about that a little bit before. So tell me about that process. Was that another thing where he sought you out or? Uh, that one was a little different. Uh, I'm just like you. Before I ever met Maynard or played with him, I was a Maynard fan. As a matter of fact, it goes even deeper for me. The first time I heard jazz music was in the seventh grade when I walked into concert band class. And my band director started class by saying, I'm going to play for you my favorite musician. <laughs> and he put on a, a record player, mm-hmm. uh, Maynard's 1975 record, Chameleon. Yep. And it was the Chick Corea tune, La Fiesta. Oh, and yeah. I had never heard anything like that. And first of all, it's, it's Maynard at the absolute top of his superpowers. And then this was a Latin jazz piece. So the energy level is just through the roof. And it was, uh, I mean, it was like trying to drink from the end of a fire hose a little bit for me. It was exciting, and I'm just drowning in so much. And so that goes by, I don't even know what that is. Right. I know it's jazz. I don't know who Maynard Ferguson is or anything. Uh, and then I find who he is, I find his name a couple years later, and I'm starting to listen to jazz, and I get obsessed. So I buy every record I can get my hands on. And then for my, uh, I think it was for my 16th birthday, finally, Maynard was going to come somewhat close to where I grew up in Florence, South Carolina. He played in Rock Hill, South Carolina at Winthrop University. So for my birthday gift, my parents, who were awesome, they said, we're going to rent a passenger van, <laughs> and you can pick seven other friends to oh, wow. go to this concert with you. And so I got to pick my buddies, and they drove us. And I, I met Maynard that night, and I met his tour manager, Ed Sargent, who would be my tour manager years later, uh, and a dear, dear friend. And so I, I was very familiar with Maynard and big nerdo fan. I wanted to be a trumpet player as a kid, although I was a drummer. I, oh, yeah. I only listen to trumpet players. Yeah. I listen to Maynard. I listen to Miles Davis. I listen to Dizzy Gillespie. I love that stuff. Yeah. I listen to Buddy Rich, of course. Of course. But I, I really love trumpet players. Clifford Brown. Yeah. So I get to North Texas, and Maynard had a long history of hiring North Texas players, and I knew that. Mm-hmm. So uh, as my years are going by at North Texas, uh, we I start realizing a couple drummers who are two or three years older than me and graduating, they're out playing with them. Mm-hmm. Great drummer named Paul Stivitz, who I'd been in school with. And then after Paul, he recommends... When he's leaving, he recommends the current one o'clock drummer at the time, Joel Fountain. Mm-hmm. And Joel had a practice room across the hall from me at school for all the years. And so Joel goes out, and then I'm in the one o'clock band, and Joel's on the road. And Joel would come home on tour breaks, and I would tell him, hey, you know, um, I am a gigantic Maynard fan. <laughs> and I would just love to be considered, if you're ever going to leave the band, if you wouldn't mind recommending me, it's my dream. He goes, of course, I'd be happy to. And it's funny, because in the meantime, there was a couple other players at school, like a trombonist, I remember... He was trying to get on the main art band, so I remember I got together with him one day, and we laid down a bunch of tunes for the audition. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, this is surreal. Like, <laughs> Maynard's gonna. He- I'm thinking Maynard's gonna hear this. Well, I'm getting close to graduating, and I get I get the call like, hey, I'm leaving the band. 
send me a demo. I'll give it to the manager, music director, and if they like it, they'll share it with Maynard. Mm -hmm. So I, I give it to him, and I am just like, oh, I want this gig. You're buzzing, yeah. I really want this gig. And I vividly remember the phone call. <laughs> this is so out. Because I'm coming home from a gig playing a funeral <laughs> here in Dallas, playing jazz at a funeral, and they've forgotten to pay us. <laughs> so my buddy, the saxophone player, is in the other seat with me. They say, go, buy, go stop by the uh, reception afterwards, and we'll right. get you a check. So I'm pulling up at the reception to let my buddy out, and there's cars parked on both sides of the street, and there's valet waving us. I get the call about the Maynard gig and yeah. giving a demo. I'm so excited. My buddy Tom says, hey, I'm going to go get a check. I'll be right back. He throws my door open on my little Pontiac Grand Am, and I see a car flying down the street. And I oh, say, Tom, no. look out. So he reaches back, and the car just crumples oh, no. the, the passenger side door of my, my car. Like, it would have killed Tom. I'm so glad it didn't. But I'll never oh, forget wow. the day I got that call because of that. <laughs> and so then I send, a, I send my demo stuff in, and Joel Fountain's like, yeah, and I think they're going to love you. They love one o'clock drummers. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. I don't hear anything. Yeah. I don't hear anything for a long time. Wow. So I graduate. And now I'm, I wanted to move to New York, mm -hmm. but if I was going to get the Maynard gig, I wasn't going to move. Yeah. And I'm not hearing anything. And then in the meantime, I get called to play a show in Branson, Missouri for a six-month run that paid ridiculous money. I was like, well, I guess I'll take it because then I'll save the money and move to New York. What was the show? It was going to be, I probably shouldn't say because it had a bad ending. And there, it, it, it's, been in the, it's been in Branson before, but it was going to be a, a jazz-related thing. Okay. And before I agreed to do this, I called... Uh, the tour manager, Ed Sargent from Maynard Ferguson, said, hey, I'm just calling to see if you've made a decision. And he was like, we just got off the road and I haven't talked to Maynard at all. I don't know what we're going to do. And I was like, and I could tell he was not wanting to talk to me at the time. And I was like, okay, thanks. And I was like, man, this isn't going to happen. So <laughs> I agree. I didn't sign a contract, but I agreed to go to Branson. Yeah. So I'm getting ready to move. And I swear like a week later that I agreed to go to Branson, Ed Sargent calls me back. Oh no. And he's like, hey Stockton, I just got off a meeting with Maynard. We listen to your stuff. We think you sound great. We want you in the band. Oh my God. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I told him, I was like, I, this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever said, but I've dreamed of this moment and I'm going to have to say no because I just... You just signed a contract. Yeah. I was like, I, I gave verbal agreement to go to Branson to play the show and I told him who it was with and he goes, hey, look, um, I really appreciate you honoring that commitment because I'd want the same thing to me. Yeah. And he goes, there'll be another chance. You go play that gig. We'll... We'll do it again. Oh, man. But you're just broken I'm, inside. I'm yeah. devastated. Yeah. Devastated. I mean, I didn't cry, but I almost did. Yeah. And I think I sat in shock the rest of the day. Like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? Well, and then it goes from bad to worse. I start getting my gig in Branson. It keeps getting delayed. Okay, we can't start now for another month. So I'm sitting here in Dallas, and I'm gigging a little bit, but I've been kind of shutting down and not taking gigs. Right. Because I was supposed to be gone. Yeah. So then I'm like, I am screwing up <laughs> so i'm sitting nothing to do wondering what the heck to do with my career and i get an email from joel fountain who had been maynard's drummer and said hey um i just got a strange call from ed Sargent, and i guess whatever drummer they hired isn't working out and they asked if i could come fill in for two weeks and i can't because i'm in canada and immigration won't let me and he goes could you go fill in for two weeks with them and i was like yes yes absolutely <laughs> And it was funny. I send this email and my phone rings immediately afterwards and it's Ed Sargent. And he goes, Stockton, uh, he goes, I talked to Joel. He said, you're available. And I was like, yeah, my gig in Branson keeps getting delayed. He goes, yeah, I called about that. I called some guys I know and they said that gig's not happening. Oh. And I was like, 
okay, let me call the guy and check. And then I'm good. He goes, okay, I'll work on your ticket. Call him. <laughs> so I, I hang up. I call my contact and Brancy goes, yeah, I've been meaning to call you. It looks like it might be another six months. Oh my gosh. So I was like, I've had another opportunity. I'm going to take it. Thank you. And I call back and call Ed Sargent back. He goes, okay, your tickets will be waiting for you. Here's what time it is. Yeah. The tour is, is <laughs> my first tour was 12 weeks. He goes, we're going to pick you up in Elko, Nevada. Oh, wow. And uh, we go all the way from Montana to the Florida Keys, and we're going to end in Washington, D.C. So, you know, pack uh, everything. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the next morning. Yeah. 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 And so from then on, you know, it was a whirlwind. And they pull up to the airport and dropped the other drummer that they had fired off and picked me up. Oh, wow. And I mean, I, I'm carrying my suitcases. It's a whirlwind. I'm carrying my suitcases. I walk on the tour bus, and Maynard's standing there. He's like, hey, it's so great to meet you. And yeah. I'm just like, hi. Mr. Ferguson. It's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> you know, and I did. I think I called him Mr. Ferguson. He goes, call me Maynard because he pronounces it Maynard. Yeah. And uh, I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, just, and my next gig was. Stammering. Like I had a gig the next day with yeah. them. So we did one rehearsal <laughs> and he came to five minutes of it and heard me play one song and then came and shook my hand. I was like, you're cool. Because he knew I knew the style. Yeah. 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 But it was awesome. So tell me, like you had talked about this playing with with Doc, how you're you're playing the charts. Yeah. So like at this point, like you're not in a main, you're not in a cover band, you're in the band. Yeah. So no. like, what was that feel like? You 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 count them off on that first song and the yep. first show, and you're like, I'm in it. I'm in it. This is it. It was crazy. I mean, it 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 was ha- it happened so fast. Yeah. That I didn't really have time at first to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Because I was trying to just to adapt to everything. Like, okay, like there's terminology. Like when you're on the road, I had never been on the road like that. Mm-hmm. There's completely different jargon. Yeah. Okay, got, now call times this, butt times, lobby call this. Yeah. Okay, sound checks this. We're going to do tech, loadouts. Hit, and I'm like, oh. I'm trying to learn it all. Like, where do I go? And I'm just totally green. I mean, I'm 23. Yeah. And was there anybody that was there to kind of uh, no. usher you along? No. No. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one really. I mean, they were cool though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think they were cool because I could play. Yeah. And that they had been in dire straits before I got there. Mm-hmm. It seemed like everyone was dark. And everyone was nice, but I just would ask. I, I, I just was like, I'm going to not screw up and ask. Yeah. I was like, hey, I'm sorry. What does this mean? Oh, yeah, it means this. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing was that Maynard was just there. Yeah. He was with us. Yeah. And I'm just like. Was he uh, riding the bus with you all? Yeah, all that? yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he took the room at the back of the bus. We're all on one tour bus. Mm-hmm. And we pulled a trailer. So there was, that's the smaller big band. He called that band Big Bop Nouveau. Yeah. So it was like three trumpets, two two saxes, bone, piano-based drums. We carried an audio guy. We carried a tour manager, mm-hmm. bus driver, Maynard. And Maynard had the back thing. We had a bunk. And we'd all hang. And I mean, every night after the gig, kind of a typical schedule for us in those days. Because we were pounding it, man. It was uh, 200 to 250 shows a year. Wow. It was old school yeah. getting after it. One-nighters mostly. I mean, if you had a club for a week, that was like vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and it was, man, it was baptism by fire because I was not used to that. Yeah. So, and then I am a notoriously bad sleeper. Mm-hmm. I'm a light sleeper. I can't sleep in hotels. I'm the same. So I'm, tr- I'm just trashed for two weeks. Yeah. Until I'm so exhausted, I, I learn to sleep. Yeah. But it was that, I think that added to the surrealness of it. Sure. But every night, you know, we get on the bus usually for a, a 2 a.m. call on the bus. Yeah. And we would depart for the next city so that when we got in, the rooms would be ready. Because if you got to the next city too early, the rooms, the rooms yeah. aren't ready. Yeah. And so, and at the time, I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, like I, I didn't drink or anything. I was squeaky clean church boy. Uh, and these guys, man, I'd never seen so much beer consumed. <laughs> <laughs> My first night on the band, I'm seeing the beer hit the bus and I'm seeing cases stacked in the aisles of the bus. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
I wonder if this is for the whole tour. That bus was <laughs> bone dry the next day. And these guys were fine. I yeah. mean, they were like, hey, how, good morning. And I'm like, good, how can you function? Yeah, no, uh, knock me out. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a professional. And so drinking room. like on stage too, or was that not Never allowed? on stage, yep. never on stage, no. And a lot of what we did in Maynard's band had an educational component, which is really where I started getting into that in my career. Yeah. So we would be on campus of a high school or college a lot. So we had to be, you know, the bus was kind of considered, you know, no one could come on the bus, but personnel yeah but we even had to be careful about that so usually it was a no-no mm-hmm. um and, and even when we were in you know i don't think maynard was too strict about it yeah. but even when we were in like a club playing there wasn't really any of it on stage yeah. we did, it was kind of unspoken rule and maynard never did which a lot of people i've had people come up to me to my face tell me how they saw maynard drunk on a show and they even were pouring drinks for him and it was like a gig i was on yeah and i'm just like that's not true, that's not true. <laughs> he always had two solo cups yeah. And one was water mm-hmm. and one was ginger ale mm-hmm. because both of them were to help him salivate. And sometimes water wouldn't so and the, the ginger, ginger ale would. But okay. he would never want to drink on stage because it would yeah, it'd dry him out. Yeah. yeah. So just it was wild. But it, and it, crazy. that whirlwind honestly continued until he suddenly passed from cancer in 2006. It was just busy, so, busy, busy. So then tell me about you said he passed suddenly. Mm-hmm. Were you... I mean, he was, what, in his 80s, 70s, 80s at that Let's point? See. Were you yeah. considering a life after Maynard Ferguson at that point? Or no. It just no. never even occurred to you? Well, I mean, at the time, so I, I believe Maine was 78. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were getting ready to go to Japan for a month. Wow. And then I had just helped, I had just produced and played on his first studio album in 10 years. Wow. And it was an all-star album. So we had Wayne Bergeron. Only, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had Wayne Bergeron and Steve Weiss, Chip McNeil, Denny de Blasio. And everything looked... Like it was going upwards for me. Yeah. And I felt like I had reached this really amazing place where I was a trusted inner circle person. Yeah. I mean, Ed Sargent was the utmost trusted person. And I felt like Ed trusted me to do that. Uh, and they were trusting me with a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and it was going well. And we like, there was buzz. Like, I mean, we were getting, they, we were talking about bookings on playing like the late shows, like Letterman and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was just exciting because his management had taken on some new directions as well. And they were ready to market him finally. Yeah. And I had had other offers. And um, one of the hardest things I ever had to make a decision about was I had interest in um, joining one of the mil- the premier military bands contacted me. Oh, really? And back then it was a little, I think, more open about like uh, that you could just kind of approach one person for a position. Yeah. And now it's it's very fair and balanced as it should be. Would back, you have had to gone through basic training and yeah, all that? I would have. Yeah. I would have. Uh, but you know, they send you a package about what your pay is going to be, and plus benefits, plus benefits, and then like your 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 lifelong benefits. Yeah. And but I w- at the time I'm a single guy and I'm playing with my absolute hero. Right. Yeah. And so I and then I had started dating my wife at the time who was working in the company as well. So it was just yeah, it's perfect. Everything was going the right way. We had, we hadn't been dating that long, and it seemed serious, but. Neither one of us wanted it to be serious, honestly. Yeah. And then this, we were both kind of invested in working. And then when he passed suddenly, it was an absolute screeching halt plummet in my career. Yeah. Because this is before social media and things where you can even notify people you're available. Yeah. So for four years, if anyone reached out to me for anything, they knew I wasn't available. Yeah. And I really didn't even have a permanent residence. I mean, I had moved my you know meager possessions to my parents house in south carolina but i was right. i'd spend breaks in dallas more often than not because i had contacts here and maybe come play a couple gigs hang out stuff like that uh so i had a complete reset yeah 
And I think that was the lowest of my life career-wise where I almost ended out of the business. Really? Because I found myself months removed from playing for, for sold-out, enthusiastic jazz audiences wanting to hear jazz Yeah. to teaching at a buddy's music academy in Flower Mound. And I'll, I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and I'm trying to teach a six-year-old how to play quarter notes. <laughs> and I really was thankful for the gig. Yeah. And I, I think I could have really started going to a bad place mentally about it. Sure. And I just, and I, I, and I had some, some of the experiences we'll talk about, like I had some bad gig experiences. Yeah. Because I would say yes to anything. Mm-hmm. And then because I'd been out doing this thing, I felt like people were wanting to rub my nose in it even more. Um, they wanted to tell me what to do, or hey, this isn't that big time gig anymore. You're too loud. Even if I wasn't. So now, uh, tell me about the strangest gig you've ever played. Well, I gotta tell you, Chris, <clears throat> I had a lot of fun brainstorming for this, <laughs> and I. <laughs> I was Everybody like, loves talking about that. It's oh, always, oh, I, I played this one gig. I mean, I, it's going to be hard to narrow this down. I think, I think the number one, when I was going through them, I was like, this has to be one of them. And this is not necessarily a bad experience, but right. a, a unique experience is, uh, I, so things were going better. I've been back in Dallas now for a while. So I was back to being thought of as open to gigs in the area. So I was doing studio work, freelancing, that kind of thing. Uh, and I have a bit of a strange name. Um, since my first name Stockton is often a last name or people think it's a nickname. Right. And then Helbing's so weird. A lot of times I'm just Stockton to people. They don't know if it's my first or last name. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, was, I was actually traveling home. I had been playing a, a guest artist gig at a jazz festival. And I, I don't know why I vividly remember I was in the St. Louis airport for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I get a phone call and it's someone I didn't even know. They said, Hey, this is so-and-so. Uh, I'm wondering if you would be available to play this unique event <laughs> in a couple days in Dallas. And I was like, oh, what is it? And they're like, oh, well, it's, so it was uh, like a combining of hip hop music and Broadway music. And it was okay. gonna be a really special event. And if I'm remembering correctly. So it was Hamilton before Hamilton? Way before Hamilton. And it was gonna be at the brand new AT&T Center downtown. Okay. So the yeah. one that's right by the Meyer yeah, yeah. Center. I think it's AT&T Performing Arts Center. Mm -hmm. And it was gonna be the opening event there. Wow. And it was called Hip Hop Broadway. And then they said, it's going to feature a lot of different guests, one of which, and the big headliner was Erica Badu. Wow, yeah. And I, I grew up in South Carolina, and one of the things that I'm so thankful for is I, as a young white kid, had a lot of friends that were black because it was yeah. South Carolina. And they introduced me to a lot of music. And some, one of the artists that I really fell in love with when I was a kid growing up was Erica Badu. Her yeah. first record, Baduism, just awesome. It's like, you know, kind of a combination of Billie Holiday yeah. and and. and you know, that kind of R&B sense that we'd been hearing in the 90s. So I love that stuff. So well, and that, then being, you know, a Dallas, in Dallas, right. she's, Erica's she, huge. Yeah, she's she as went big to, as it gets in Dallas. Went to Booker T. And yeah. I, I went to North Texas with a lot of, uh, a lot of guys who were working with her at the time. Like my classmates in North Texas were Braylon Lacey, amazing bass player here in Dallas, and Sean Martin, who everyone knows from uh, Snarky Puppy, R.C. Oh, yeah, Williams. Yeah. I was in class and ensembles at school with yeah, them. Yeah. So, and they were, so they were gigging with Erica at the time. And I also, you know, because I get it, you know, like if, if you're a hip hop artist, you're selling tickets to a hip hop show, you're probably not going to want to show up and see a white dude playing drums. Yeah. It's just the optics aren't really right. And sure. I get it. I totally get it. I don't resent anybody for it. So 
I knew that this was probably one of those opportunities for me to play with an artist like this. I was like, wow, this sounds unique. So they're like, okay, here's the details. So-and-so's music director, they'll call you, get you the charts, because we need someone who can read, because it's hip-hop stuff, but it's also Broadway stuff. So you're going to be yeah. in the pit reading all this different stuff. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, mm. I would love to, because that kind of hip-hop drumming I love, but yeah. I very rarely have used that in my career. Sure. Other than So was it like the, the D'Angelo Questlove, way out of time kind of? It was, you know, it was not that type. I didn't know, honestly. Okay. So yeah. I didn't, at this point, I don't know. Yeah. Because they say they're going to send me stuff and I haven't seen it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And then it's the next day, rehearsal the next day, mm-hmm. show the day after. Wow. So I'm flying home and I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm trying to listen to whatever I can, mm-hmm. like get it in my head. And I still don't see anything. I just have a call time. Yeah. And on the flight, as I'm flying home and I'm getting excited about it, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? They only called me Stockton on the phone call. And I don't think they know I'm a white dude. <laughs> it just kind of it crossed my mind. I was like, oh, I, but you're thinking, surely they've done their homework. Surely they. I but I was like, I don't know, because because yeah. it it became known to me on the phone call. They had fired a couple drummers, so they had been burning through drummers because cats oh, yeah. couldn't read it. Yeah. And I'm like, uh oh, they're going through cats because they probably have great players, but they can't read the ch- like a Broadway chart's weird. Like yeah. reading a show chart's complete different thing. Yeah. And the the contact they said had recommended me, I realized was an art an R and B artist I'd worked with some, and I was like, oh man, this this might be weird. So I get the details the next day. It's a rehearsal spot in Dallas. Yeah. And I was like, uh oh. So I go, have my drums on a cart, you know, drums was, in a case. Where was the rehearsal spot? It was downtown. <laughs> they said rehearsal's gonna be at a location in Dallas. It's a, a place called Dallas Black Arts and Letters. Ah, okay. And so I was like By okay. the old city hall. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's there still. And I was just like, Oh man, I don't think they know I'm a white guy. <laughs> and it was one of those things. So I walk into the hall with, with my drums uh-huh. and it was like classic out of a sitcom, everything stops. It just records screeches. Everything stops. And they're like, yeah, they're like, can we help you? And I was like, (laughs) yeah. You must be lost. I was like, I'm, I'm Stockton. And no one flinched. Like everyone's like, who? And I was like, I'm the drummer. And then everyone's like, oh, you can see them all like, oh my (laughs) God. And they were like, all right, come on in and get set up. (laughs) And so it's, it's immediately, it's a pretty thick vibe. Yeah. And, because at this point, they don't have enough time to call another drummer. Yeah, so what they're thinking, and I don't blame like, this cat's not going to be able to play the styles. Yeah. I get it. And I had thankfully gone through things like this growing up in the right. South. And I was not prepared for it growing up. And that's yeah. why it was so valuable. And I had a lot of people tell me, like, you've got to figure this stuff out. And I'd been working on it for years and years and years. And so we start rehearsal. First tune, there's a chart, but there's also, you got to play pocket, read a chart. And I'm sight reading it, but, you know, it wasn't. I felt like it was within my talent level. So I think it went well. Yeah. So immediately you see the musicians relax. They're good, like, oh, that cool. And so what was the what was the band setup like? So we're it's just like your typical kind of music director's playing keys, second keys, electric bass. Okay. Guitar. So yeah, typical pit band kind typical of typical pit band, and we're kind of sitting in front facing the stage. And then what is becoming known to me is that it's just gonna be a parade of stars who are gonna come out and do a tune. Yeah, and we're rehearsing without any of that. But mm-hmm. then there's some involvement of a lot of local high school students singing backgrounds. Yeah, there's a lot of dancing. It's a mm. big production. Yeah, so it's cool. So we do like the the morning rehearsal. It's just me and the band, and a couple like background vocals. Goes great. Mm-hmm. And it's like okay, now we're going over to the Adams Mart, yeah. to this ballroom, mm-hmm. and they're gonna bring in all the guests to rehearse with us. Wow, yeah. And I'm like, okay, this will be cool. Yeah. So I get there, and it's crazy. Yeah. They have the band in the middle of a gigantic ballroom. Wow. And then they're 
busing in kids yeah. to watch this. Uh-huh. So now we start having kids sitting four and five deep completely around the uh, ballroom. Yeah. And they're all interested in seeing all these, you know, Erica's going to be there. Yeah, yeah. And Erica, I, you know, I can't even remember. So it was uh, j- uh, one of the original uh, singers from Showgirls, Jennifer Holiday. She sang hey. the original. She's there. Uh, and so I'm like, this is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and I am the white dot. And I am the palest dude. Like, Who was I, the MD? Was it RC? No, RC wasn't on it. I wish. You know, I, yeah. I had hoped that I'd show up and it would be one. I didn't know anybody at the yeah. time. And now it's, it's, I'm getting foggy on who it was. So I didn't know anyone. Yeah. Everyone was, the band guys were great. Yeah. And they yeah, were yeah. very welcoming and everything went well. And so what it becomes known to me, this is a tense situation because you can hear people saying stuff about it. I hear the kids yeah, talking yeah. like, who's a white drummer? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be asking the same thing. Right. And, uh, <laughs> so what they're going to do is open one side of the ballroom door for rehearsal yeah. and they're going to introduce whoever the star is and they're going to walk wow. all the way to the center. Yeah. We're going to play their tune and they're going to walk off. So they announce the first person and you know, the room erupts because it's yeah. big name people. And it's, so it happens time and time again. You see the star walking in, their eyes fall on the bandstand and they see me. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like a, uh, what? Cause it doesn't make sense. Right. And then time and time again, we play the tune and they're cool. <laughs> and and everyone was so nice. Like usually it would go well. Maybe they, they I'd be the first one on there where they'd come, you know, shake my hand or yeah, give me yeah. a fist bump or whatever. <laughs> and uh, you know, Erica comes through. Yeah, super cool. Thank God I knew that she was the only artist where there was no chart. Yeah. And I'm just we hadn't rehearsed it. I was like, what are we doing with Erica? They announced her. I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> and they're like, you know, we're just doing on and on. Do you know it? And I'm like, oh, praise God I do. Yeah. And they're like, well, just play the kickoff. And I was like, the k- what is it? And I'm like, oh yeah, it's the poisonlet. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the Bell Biv Devolik. Right. And she was totally cool, but it's still tense because it keeps it keeps happening time and time again. So finally, and I I can't remember this this lady's name. Uh, this awesome gospel singer from Broadway comes in, and she is a flamboyant, over the top. Yep. And we do like, and we hadn't rehearsed her piece, and I don't know what it is. And they're like, it's just a gospel thing. That's all they tell me. Okay. And, I, and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> that could be a lot of things. Right. And so it's like 12-8 slow. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, I got to Don't rush this. Yeah. And so we play it. It goes really well. And so as soon as she's done and people are clapping, she goes, white boy! <laughs> Into the mic. And it's silence in this room. And I was like, this is it. This is it. I'm dead. She goes, when I close my eyes, I swear you're black. And then that was it. That was like the icebreaker. You were in. Yeah. I was in. And then everyone laughed. And people who hadn't been warm and friendly were beautiful to me. Yeah. And then we played the date. We played it the next day and it went great. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is my we were engaged. We weren't even married yet. My wife came and she sat at the top of the balcony. <laughs> so the only other white person I think was her. Right. And it was funny because she said so many people were like, are you the drummer's wife? <laughs> kept coming I just up knew. To, yeah. And what the funny thing too is that the gal who had done that, why boy, she did the same thing during the show and, and like got a, the house Big laugh. applause. But to me, it was like uh, such a memorable, a memorable event because first of all, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Um, the style of music meant a lot to me, and I think I always had a bit of a monkey on my back because I hadn't gotten to do it at the highest level. Yeah. And I wanted to. Right. Because I liked it, and then for me, it's kind of this. I didn't even realize that as a time, but I wanted to show respect for it course because i did respect it and i grew up respecting it and i didn't realize and now i do there could be a different perspective on that they just want this gig for the money yeah they want to get in here and i was like no 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 i, I really like it you yeah. know i want to be pure to it so that that was probably the number one that's if i had cool. to th- reach in the bag and it's yeah, still 
still means a lot to me, you know? Yeah. And it's just, I don't think there's a recording of it. Oh, that's a shame. Or anything, but I'll, I'll never, ever yeah. forget it. That's amazing. <laughs> and then I, I, I also think what made it great is I think I ended up getting stiff some pay on it. Oh, of course. Which I was like, this is an authentic, you know, like this is a real gig. That's a real, yeah, <laughs> like, that's a real bad I s- gig. <laughs> I, s- I sweat buckets and I was stressed out and then I didn't make what you they told me paid. I was going to make. <laughs> it was one of those things where someone said this and it ended up being something else. And I was like, you know what? This was so much better for me. Just the story. Yeah. yeah I would have done it for free. Having the story. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I love it. So now, now tell me about your dream gig. If there was any gig that past, present, future. I mean, I'm so very, very blessed because my dream as a young person was to play with Maynard. The Maynard, yeah. And there was never a moment that I didn't want to be there. My only frustrations playing with Maynard were just typical band frustrations where I was like, man, I don't think we have the right people in all these positions. Yeah. Which is just typical. That's sure. Al- that's yeah. always a struggle. Uh, and I, I personally would not always feel everyone was there for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Where for me, it was a very intense thing. I'm like, man, I'm here to play with Maynard Ferguson. How many of the guys then were just, and I, and I hesitate to say this, but how many of them do you feel like were using that gig as a stepping stone? Oh, I think that was just a common practice. Yeah. Not only with Maynard's band, but going before that with the Woody Herman band, Buddy Rich band, when there were big bands. Yeah. That's what you did. You got out of college, mm-hmm. you got on a band or two, then you got your first gig, yeah. either a teaching gig or you settled somewhere. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily bad either, because in a musician's defense, it paid not well. Right. It wasn't paying well, so you really had to be balancing, well, there's a different kind of equity I'm accruing here yeah. other than fiscal, which is was my perspective at the time. And then I was younger, and so I'm living lean. I mean, if I were married with kids, like right now, I could never in a trillion years do it more than a week as a guilty pleasure. Sure. Um, but it was it was just such a dream come true. And then to get to play with Doc, yeah. To be quite honest, I felt guilty. I was like, because I loved him growing up too. Of course. And then my mistake was thinking he'd be just like Maynard. Yeah. Because they were born both in 1928. They were good friends. They're both superstar trumpet players. I mean, I know they played differently, but Maynard was so fun, so laid back. He never told you what to do. Really, he led yeah. by example. And Doc is the opposite. Really. He was in my grill about everything. Yeah. What kind of sticks are those? What kind of snare drum? I'm like, make. <laughs> what do you mean? Shut up. Leave me. But I didn't say it. I'm of like, course. He was on me. And I knew that I, I didn't get in with him at first. You know, I felt like it took a year. Really? Until I felt like, you know what, this is my gig. It didn't feel like my gig for a year. Yeah. I thought, you know, he might not like me. Because mm-hmm. I felt like he was on me. And then I started realizing he was on me because he saw, I think he saw something he liked, yeah. I hope. And I felt like he was investing in me. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I would be greedy, you know, wanting to play, you know, saying I have a dream job. I think or wanting a dream gig. My dream gig now um, is pretty much the same as it's been now for a good 12 years is the dream is to work my own band full time. Yeah. And my personal dream, which is ridiculous, I would like to be able to salary my guys. Yeah. That's my dream. My dream would be to get them a salary so they don't have to stress Mm -hmm. so they could be more focused on what I do. Yeah. And I believe we're going to get there. I really do. I want to get there. Sure. And I feel in a way uh, a bit of an obligation to do it because I think people have invested in me to do something like that, right. um, to play a certain kind of music and talk about it. And then it seems to have just seemingly fallen in my lap that I've had experiences that allow me to talk about music, uh, to talk about how we do it, and then to tackle some, I think, that pretty touchy 
uh, diversity things That's great. that are important and uh, hot topic conversations right now. And I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And I get looks sometimes, but then I also, uh, one of the things, it, it nearly broke my heart actually. I was doing a, I do a lot of guest artist things like at high schools and colleges. So they'll bring me out and I'll, I'll do some lecturing and I'll rehearse with maybe their jazz band and some percussion ensembles and we'll do a concert for the parents. Yeah. And I was doing one of these percussion things and um, we, we were playing a piece that they had selected. It's a really cool piece by that band Steps Ahead. You ever hear, remember them? Steps yeah, Ahead? yeah, yeah. It's called Senegal Calling. Okay. And it's really cool. A lot like of an African. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like overt African musical yeah. tendencies, jazz hybrid stuff. Really cool piece. And so they asked me to speak before just about, talk about the tune, talk about where it comes from. So I just kind of give my normal spiel yeah. about the, the rhythmic elements of all popular music in the United States for the most part right. being African and therefore black influenced. And I just was talking about how, you know, this, this diversity is what makes us unique and everyone in this room is different. And that's the best part about every single one exactly. of you. And, and it's beautiful and I can't wait to see what you all do. Uh, and I had, um, I had a, uh, some parents and, and their student and they were people of color come up to me afterwards and they were like, we just want to thank you because um, our daughter struggles here. She's one of the only uh, students who are her specific ethnicity and look like her. And we don't ever hear someone talk positively about yeah, wow. her uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, and I told them too, I was like, well, let me apologize first of all, because people should all the time. Right. And second of all, I'm just glad that I, if I could do anything to encourage you, uh, it makes it worth it for me because a lot of people encouraged me along the way. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't always easy being a, a white kid drummer in the South um, when I would just be getting destroyed because I didn't know the style and didn't understand. Right, yeah. And a lot of people would just pull me aside and say, hey, you're nowhere close on this. <laughs> Go. Have you ever heard of this? Have you yeah, ever yeah. tried this? Have you done this? And those little encouragements, they, they are these seeds that take root in us that can do yeah. big things. So for me, if I can do that, um, I mean, I want to do it on as big of a scale as possible, and I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. But I do know that every chance I get, even during this pandemic, um, I have something. I have a, a program that we pre-recorded for a jazz festival in Oklahoma next week, mm-hmm. and it was I featured a lot of uh, of Dallas jazz musicians on it, and like one of the people I featured is a great tenor saxophonist in town named Shelley Carroll. Yep, and I've yeah. known Shelley for twenty years. Yeah, he's a legend. He's amazing, and I'm I'm honored to call him a friend, and I'm I'm always privileged to have him in my band, and he's been a member of the Duke Ellington Orchestra for thirty six years. Wow, you know, th- and so I I talk about that, you yeah. know. And a lot of people don't know, uh, years ago, at the State Fair of Texas, there was only one day a year that people of color could go. Yeah. And they would bring in huge headliners for that one day only. And Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, one of the people they brought really? in. Really? I didn't know that. Band. Isn't that crazy? The ties to yeah. our area? So my, that would be my dream gig, is yeah, to be able to do great. that and to, to have enough financial stability, both for myself and the band, that mm-hmm. I could you know, dwell upon that. I think I could do it even better. We'll see. That's great, man. One final question for you. What, uh, what is the one, it's an easy one. What is the, what is one thing that you have to take with you to every gig? Other than your drums, of course. Okay. So other than my, uh, earplugs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, a good ear filter. Yeah. Like, not even joking. Like, I learned years ago. And, and you know how this is. Yeah, because yeah. when you find yourself in production situations, mm-hmm. you cannot lose the discernment of decibels. Yeah. And if you lose that, it has horrific <laughs> ramifications on your music making. Yep. And it's weird. You have to get used to it. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, for me, um, that final check out the door of gear or whatever is always my good filters. Yeah, your earbuds. My my earbuds and yeah, so well, your, your, your mo- yeah. in your monitors, yeah, for sure. Uh, if we're doing a monitor situation or if it's acoustic, like, and the right ones too, you know, if it's a light gig, I need my light, you know, I want to have only like that five decibel filter mm-hmm. in there. Or if it's, we're going to be getting after it, pop that 25 decibel yeah. filter in there. That's great. But that, yeah, that's the big one. And I'll tell you the other one, food. And I'm not even a foodie. <laughs> but I've screwed up because musicians forget to eat. Uh, yeah. And we're usually loading in at mealtime. Yeah, or if we do eat, it's, you know, you're scarfing down a, a cheeseburger yeah, right oh. 10 minutes before. And then you're just, that, that has consequences. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I say ear, ear filter and a nice healthy protein. Nice healthy <laughs> A big bowl of pasta. There you go. Carve it up. Yeah. <laughs> Stockton, thank you so, so much. My pleasure, I really Chris. appreciate it. What is, uh, you said you you have a new album out. Yeah. My new album's called Light Sleeper. Okay. And uh, we actually, I'm pleased to say, sold them all the hard copies out. Oh, great. But it's, uh, we did a limited pr- printing of them, but it's available everywhere. You can find it at Spotify, Spotify and all that. you name it. And even on YouTube, there's videos of us playing it live in the studio. Oh, great. Um, and then you can find, anytime you want to get a hold of me, I'm easy to find because my name's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so StocktonHelbing.com will get you to any of my social media. Hang out and find me. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This is a My pleasure. Blast. All right. Thank you so much to Stockton for being on the show. Y'all be sure to check him out, StocktonHelbing.com. Then be sure to tune in to the next episode where our guest will be my good friend Nick Seeley, noted hip-hop producer and sample maker. Again, you can find us at chrisjnorwood.com slash podcast or on Spotify and Alexa. Thank y'all so much for tuning in to the Strangest Gig Podcast. And until next time, remember, a gig's a gig, right?